Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want to continue on this morning. We're going to jump into the Word. I want to continue on with what we were looking at last week. And so if you would go ahead, why don't you go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And uh, we're, I think we'll get there. Uh, but I want to do a little bit of review and then, then jump back into this subject. Because I had some questions on what I talked about last week. And I just want to hit this thing home. Now, uh, what we talked about last week uh, ended up naming the, the, naming the sermon, God is not your painkiller. And uh, someone said to me, well, yes, he is. And I said, no, he's not. And I want to clarify what I mean by that. And uh, so the reason I spoke on what I spoke on last week was that uh, the previous week, there was a well-known 30-year-old pastor who had committed suicide. It was a tragic thing. Took his own life. And uh, there was a lot of talk on social media. What really concerned me was some of the interaction on social media and some of the conclusions, some of the narrative that was being uh, woven by Christians. And I believe it really revealed a troublesome theological problem in the body of Christ today. There is a, a theological stance that people have bought into that I believe is very, very dangerous. And so I wanted to address that. And I believe that this whole subject, this whole conversation really pushed that to the forefront. And the way I would frame it is this, that there is in the body of Christ, uh, let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray, God, that you would anoint me to speak. Lord, let me speak your words. Lord, I ask that you would minister to us your truth. I ask, Lord, that your teaching would fall like rain. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand. Lord, we yield to you. We're hungry for you. Lord, instruct us that we may know your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start here. How many of you ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Tremendous theologian, philosopher, uh, and he wore little knickers. He had long hair, bangs, and a little goat, long goatee, wore little knickers. He, was, he lived in the Alps and ministered to a lot of hippies. It was a strange-looking dude, absolutely brilliant man. Francis Schaeffer wrote a lot of books, and one of, he, he wrote this fascinating little book called Art and the Bible. Anybody ever read that book, Art and the Bible? Fascinating little book. I'd encourage you to encourage you to get it. It's on Audible, too. It takes you about an hour and a half to get through the whole book. Fascinating. And towards the end of the book, and of course, he's talking about the place of art in the Christian life. Fascinating. And he talked about, uh, in, towards the end of the book, he said this, and it was just kind of a side issue he touched on, but it was a brilliant insight. And this is what he said. He said that the gospel has a major theme and a minor theme. The major theme is victory. The major theme is Christ's victory over sin, his triumph. It's the resurrection, how he's redeemed us. The minor theme is darkness, sin, and suffering. It's our struggle. And he's discussing this within the context of art, and his point in the book was that our art must express our worldview, that every artist's art does express their worldview, whether they're aware of it or not. And he said that a Christian artist, they must communicate both the major theme and the minor theme of the gospel. 
Because if all we talk about is the major theme, we come off as pie in the sky, uh, Pollyanna, even hypocritical, ignoring or denying our own struggle. Whereas, and then he said, but if we only talk about, he, he didn't say this, but this is what he was implying, I think. If, if you only emphasize the minor theme, we miss the major theme. And here, that when I read that, it, it, it really stuck out to me because I think we've hit a juncture in the Christian faith, in this hour of human history, where we have made the major theme the minor theme and the minor theme the major theme. And that's what I was talking about last week, that there's, there is a sentiment in Christendom today, especially in the emerging generation, and I think there's some good things about it, but there's a dangerous element to what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. And what I'm saying is this, there's a, there is a tendency to take the minor theme, our struggle, our, uh, the darkness, the suffering, the, the struggle we're having and making it the major theme and in the process, losing the victory. And in so doing, we celebrate authenticity but forfeit transformation. Or you could say this way, we celebrate being transparent, but we don't ever move into transformation. We think that because we're being honest about our struggle, we've arrived. And in so doing, we've settled for false finish lines. We've reduced salvation to justification, and we've ignored the need for sanctification. Jesus didn't simply die. He didn't die simply to give, make you forgiven, he died to make you free. And it's important that we embrace transparency. It's important that we are authentic. And I believe that the present emphasis on the minor theme of the gospel, the struggle, this thing of being transparent and authentic is a, is a reaction, and some of it is good, but I believe we've swung too far. I believe some of it is a reaction to previous generations design, uh, denying our junk, denying that we have some stuff to deal with. And so we've got to admit our stuff in order to deal with our stuff. But just admitting your stuff doesn't mean that you've dealt with your stuff. And if, if you're just admitting your stuff and you're not dealing with your stuff, you're not where God wants you. That is the first step in the journey, but it's not the destination. Authenticity is the first step, but then we've got to deal with our stuff. And so it, it, there's a danger of us making the ma minor theme the major theme. And you hear this coming to the forefront and, and, and understand, I am not, this is not a criticism, this is a concern from somebody who has some gray hair. But I'm hearing this from some of the, the generation that's coming up through the ranks. Sharp, brilliant, committed young men and women. But I'm concerned that there's a lot of talk about being authentic. And even in the worship, it's songs about our struggle. But we're not emphasizing that Jesus died to get us through the struggle and on the other side. All through history, it has been the Pentecostal charismatic movement that have been the ones that have emphasized the victory side. And without the power of the Spirit, we will surrender to this thing and we will settle for authenticity about our struggle as the goal. 
Because it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can overcome our issues. Now, it is essential that we keep the minor theme as part of our narrative. Because it's a very real thing. And and in fact, if we don't talk about the minor theme, then people that come in here are going to think, I can't even relate with these people. If they believe the narrative, they'll say, "I I don't fit in because those people are perfect. And most of them will come in and say, you're full of it. Full of baloney. Okay, I know where your mind is going. Full of baloney. And so we've got to own that, and we need to own it even for ourselves. There is no sanctification without authenticity. So we have that settled. Now, let me just make a statement, and this is what I meant when I said last week that Jesus is not your painkiller. Jesus, Christianity, the kingdom of God are not new modes to medicate your pain. The gospel is not a way to escape reality. The gospel is the only tool to rightfully deal with reality. It's not a way to escape your pain. It equips you to deal with your pain and to resolve it. It's not a way for us to ignore our pain. And it doesn't do you any good to claim it's under the blood if you're still living under the influence of your past woundedness. Jesus suffered to free you from your sin. He suffered to free you from your chains. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. There's still some suffering left to you to relinquish those chains. There is no sanctification. There is no freedom from sin without us embracing pain. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I'm about to tell you. There is no freedom from sin without you embracing pain. Because at its root... Sin is always flight from pain. You can say it this way. Each and every one of us, and we're all different. We all have unique vulnerabilities, unique weaknesses, and unique strengths. And the enemy is out to capitalize on your vulnerability. He wants to leverage your vulnerability and entice you to step into an immoral response to your vulnerability. And when you do that, when you choose an immoral response to your vulnerability, then the next step is you have to develop a philosophy that justifies that behavior. Because you can't live with yourself without working the the cognitive dissonance, the the tension that you're going to feel in your own heart and mind, the guilt. So we've got to buy into a philosophy that signs off on that behavior. Does that make sense? So again, pardon me using myself as an, experience, as, as an example, but I'm the only life I've ever lived, okay? So this is my, my own example. I was tremendously insecure. I had tremendous anxiety attacks. I can look back. There were some things that I was born into, and there were some, it was some, that was nature, but there was also some nurture that happened. There were some events in my life where the enemy sabotaged me and created this tremendous anxiety and self-consciousness and, the, you know, uh, what is it, uh, just that paranoia, that, that, uh, that tremendous self-consciousness, analysis or paralysis by analysis. That's what I was looking for. 
So my sinful response to this miserable state was to begin to drink alcohol because alcohol relieved those inhibitions. The problem is I had no inhibitions. And that was the enticement to it. It relieved me of my anxiety. And in so doing, the enemy pulled me into bondage. And then I had to buy into a philosophy that could could justify that kind of behavior. I had to blame someone for my problems, so I chose my parents and my teachers and anybody else that told me what to do. And the problem was, there were enough counselors in the rehabs and the, the different programs I went into that were willing to blame my parents too. So I would seek out counsel that would agree with and align with and, uh, you know, that, that would agree with my justifications. And so for me to deal with that alcoholism, at a, I had to do it more than at a behavioral level. Let, let's put it this way. You have a bruise. There's a wound in your life. It may be something that you were born with in the sense that there is a deficit, there is a weakness, and that weakness is meant to draw you to God and it's to become your strength because in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. My number one fear in life was public speaking. I would get drunk to read in class. I think it is absolutely hilarious that I do this for a living. But God chose to use me in my greatest weakness, and I'm grateful for it. And I wouldn't trade it for anything because I'm telling you, when I was a young man, I would get up early and I'd spend two hours a day with the Lord just to go out, just to go to class. I'd have to pray through and get filled up. I'd have to hear from him. I'd have to sense his presence just to go to class in the morning. And then I'd have to sneak into the baptismal, behind the, behind the baptismal booth during break time in class at the first Bible school. I went get prayed up some more just so I could go out in public. And I'd, I'd never trade those times for anything because he made my weakness my strength. It caused me to draw near to him. The Lord, the, when I was just a young believer in Teen Challenge, there was a, a man of God that was on staff by the name of Lou Selzer. And he came to me and said, David, he, he always had a weird, strange way of talking. He always emphasized the weirdest words in a sentence. He would be talking and he would say, and the Lord said to me, you know, but he was a man of God. And I, so I shouldn't mock him. I'm sorry. But uh, it was strange. But he, he came to me and said, David, I, I believe the Lord wants to give you a revelation of that scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here it is. I want you to go ask the Lord, in my weakness, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Go ask God what that means. So I did. And I was as excited about him showing me something, because I knew it was him, as it was about what he showed me, because I had never really heard from God like that. But I was praying, and I didn't know it at the time, but I had a vision. I, I had a picture in my mind. I didn't know that's what a vision is. And in my mind, I saw this glass of water, and it was full of water. It was only this much room at the top. And then there was another one next to it, and it had very little water. And he said, David, if you were full of your own strength, there'd be very little room for me to move. But because you're weak... There's a whole lot of room for me in your cup. I'm telling you, that changed my life. 
So the very things that the enemy uses to entice us and pull us into bondage is the very place that God wants to build his own stronghold in your life. So we have these deficits. You can say, for the preacher's sake, because you've got to have all the same letter starting the words, okay? Bruise, belief, behavior. So we have a wound in our heart. There's something, there's some weakness that we're having to deal with. And the enemy wants to leverage that to get you off the ground of righteousness and get you to relieve yourself of this pain in some immoral way. All sin has that dynamic to it. All sin plays off suffering in our life. Now that suffering can come in two forms. It's either having something in your life you do not want, but you have it right now. And the enemy will try to entice you to relieve yourself of that pain of having that thing, that presence of that thing in your life that you don't want. For me, it was anxiety. He'll try to get you to relieve yourself of that through some sinful behavior. For me, it was alcohol. Or you don't have something you do want. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a spouse who loves you and respects you. Maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, fill in the blank. We, there's a myriad of things that the enemy will use in our lives. But we, we have something we don't want or we don't have something we do want. And the enemy will begin to poke on that and tell you, step off of righteousness and relieve yourself momentarily of the suffering. That's why sin is pleasing for a season. Because it momentarily relieves you of the pain of, that you're living with. So maybe it's, I, I want to be married and I'm not. And the enemy will entice you to lower your standard. And pretty soon you find yourself living an immoral lifestyle. Living against your own convictions to satisfy this pain of loneliness in your life. Well then the next step is, you've got to develop a philosophy that justifies that. And so you either twist the scriptures so that you can continue to be a Christian while you live in sin, or you reject Christianity because God is not faithful. Either one, you have to buy into a lie to justify your behavior, not taking the blame on yourself so that you can justify how you dealt with this pain. Now, if we're going to deal with our issues, then we've got to deal with the lies we believe, and the wounds we feel so that we can stop the behavior that we act out. And too often as Christians, we're just trying to deal with our issues at a behavioral level. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not, hey, that's a good place to start. I'm not saying until you don't feel like it, continue to sin. That's not what I'm saying. But you've got to face the pain. You've got to understand what that thing is in your life. Last week, at the end of the message, we were talking about this thing. The Lord spoke to me back in 1988. I was, I was I, well, it was back in 86. I was in Mexico, and the Lord began to speak to me about this principle. And it was in 1988. He, I, I can tell you right where I was. I was walking up the aisle at Teen Challenge to go up front to preach my first message at Teen Challenge. And when I stood up to preach, I was walking towards the front, and this is what the Lord said. Every stronghold has a harlot. And I was shocked. I didn't fully understand it, but I knew that was God because I wasn't thinking that. 
You see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about strongholds. He says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds, comma, we demolish arguments. So what he's saying is the arguments we buy into are strongholds behind which the enemy hides. The enemy wants to build a false philosophy in your life. And the strong man can then hide behind the stronghold. The enemy can exercise his activity, his kingdom, in your life as long as you believe lies. Because your, his activity in your life is protected by your philosophical belief system. If you are justifying your behavior, you, that lie becomes the citadel. It becomes the wall behind which the enemy lives and operates in your life. And in order to deal with the strong man, you've got to deal with the stronghold. In order to stop the behavior, you've got to attack the belief system. But if you look in this passage in Joshua, it, li- it says that, you know, uh, Joshua sent the the spies into the promised land. Their promised land represented for us their future with all the potential, everything that God had for them. When you get saved, that's just the beginning. You cross the River Jordan, which represents your death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus went down on the River Jordan. Jacob became Israel at the River Jordan. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Elisha, the pupil, became Elisha, the prophet, at the River Jordan. It always signified a shift in identity. And so the River Jordan represents for us that baptism that we go into and we come up in the new man. And the wanderers became warriors as they passed over the Jordan. And they came in to conquer the promised land. And all that that entailed. But on the border of the promised land was this enemy citadel, this castle, this stronghold this walled city called Jericho and it says that there was a prostitute named Rahab and her house was part of the city wall that is a significant phrase what it's saying is that your woundedness becomes the thing upon which the wall is built her, what housed the prostitute, that thing in our life that causes us to sell ourselves out again and again. The prostitute in my life was that debilitating anxiety that caused me to be enticed into drinking. The wall was the alcoholism, but the prostitute was the anxiety. I about fell off the stage. Whew. I'm going to step back here. The, <laughs> glory. The, the wall... The wall was alcoholism, but that prostitute was that anxiety. And so I had to deal with the justification. So what God called Joshua to do, he sent in spies and they sought out the prostitute. You need some spies in your life. It's not a coincidence that Joshua is literally the word Jesus. It's his deliverer. It's the same word. And so Jesus wants to send some spies into your life and those spies will go into your stronghold and find the prostitute. And finding the prostitute is the key to dropping those city walls so that you can go in and begin to take the land in your life. But we've got to understand, we need help at this thing. Because when we buy into these lies, here's the problem with being deceived. 
It's pretty deceptive. And if you know you're deceived, you're no longer deceived. So when you're deceived, you need someone to help you with your deception. Because you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and so we need, we need to, that's where that authenticity thing starts. Where we get with some people and say, hey, you know what? I do some really dumb things. I drink all the time. I don't know why. I just know I do. And as you begin to bring some people, you, you bury your soul. You begin to bring some people. And by the Spirit of God, they can begin to help you dismantle those belief systems and begin to pinpoint what is the Rahab, what's the prostitute in your life. And here is the glorious, beautiful thing. He will tear down the lies, but he didn't destroy the prostitute. He used her to bring Christ to the world. She was in the lineage of Christ. God wants to use the very thing the enemy meant for bad and use it for good. The very thing that was the enemy's stronghold, if you will surrender it to Jesus, will literally become the stronghold of God in your life. It will become your greatest strength. Not because you're strong, but because that's the area we got a whole lot of room for God to move. And so we need those counselors in our life. We need those spies, people that we can trust, not people that will endorse our deception. There are a lot of believers who they're authentic with people that will endorse their behavior. You ever met someone that when they're confessing to you, you know, this is not repentance. They're just trying to take the weight off their shoulders. And what they do is they... Tell a little bit to you, and a little bit to you, and a little bit to you, and a little bit to you. And so the counsel people are giving them is, well, it's not that bad. But if you gave it to one person, they'd be saying it's pretty bad. And that's why they don't tell it to one person. That is deception. And so we've got to be willing to bear our soul to people and give some people the full picture so that they can make a proper diagnosis. You don't want to go into the doctor and not tell them about all the situation that's going, you know, whatever brought you there. You're only going to tell them about part of it, and then he'll give you medicine that deals with that, but it's going to cause more of that. <laughs> no, you want to tell them the whole thing he, so he can get a good diagnosis, get a good prognosis, and, you know, give you, you got to describe so he can prescribe. But if we don't describe, then no one can help us. So we've got to be honest. We've got to be authentic. But that is not the end. That's merely the beginning. And here's the thing. In order for you to work through this, you are going to have to embrace your pain. You're going to have to face this thing. Christianity is not a painkiller where now you just found a new way to numb out. Now, some people use it that way. They just get really involved in church. They're just doing all kinds of things. Busy for the kingdom, busy for the kingdom, busy for the kingdom. And one of the reasons they want to be busy for the kingdom is not because they really want to see the kingdom expand as much as it is they don't want to be alone with themselves because when everything settles down, they got to face them. You don't want to use ministry as a, a painkiller, as a, as a numbing effect that keeps you from facing your issues. I want to tell you, there are a lot of ministries well, let's go back to our analogy, the promised land. 
Okay, the promised land, they were going to go into the promised land, and they had to uproot, they had to displace the enemy, right? And we talked about last week how God told them, I'm going to do this over time, I'm going to do this incrementally, because if I were to give you the entire promised land at once, the, enemies, the, the animals would overtake the ground, the, the land. And so God was just going to give them as much as they could steward. And some people grow faster than others because some people are intentional about it and really want to conquer those things in their life and they'll grow quickly and some people grow almost by default. It's almost on accident and it takes a lot longer. But they're displacing the enemy in their lives. And then there are some believers who actually indenture the enemy, the presence of the enemy in their life into servitude. What do I mean by that? There are people who are motivated in ministry by their own woundedness. And it's the enemy's activity, and they're leveraging that to build the kingdom only for that thing to blow up later on. If they don't deal with their insecurities, they're they're using ministry as a validation to their identity. And if you are building your ministry, if you are doing things in ministry to validate your identity, there is a shelf life on that. And that thing will blow up. And so what happened, in in the future, the children of Israel didn't move all the enemies out of the promised land. They indentured some of them into servitude. And the interesting thing was that they built the kingdom through enemy slave labor only to have those slaves rise up and attack them and their children to die at the hands of the slaves that they had under their, that they had indentured, that God told them to kill, but they were using them for slave labor. It's not what you do, but why you do it. We can use ministry as a way to numb out. We can use Christianity as a way to numb out. I want to tell you, when I was in Bible school, we had, to, we had this thing called a practicum. You had to get, the, the Bible school that Kathy and I met at, you had to get aerobic points, and you had to have a practicum along with your classes. You could have got straight A's, but if you didn't have a practicum, ministry involvement, and you didn't get your aerobic points, you didn't, you weren't, you didn't stay in shape. They would measure your fat at the beginning of the semester. And then, yeah, I don't know, that humiliating. Then you'd have, this is Louisiana. You'd have to run like three miles and they'd touch. We're like, it's like breathing water down in Louisiana. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like 50 pounds less than I am now, and it, I was dying. And uh, they, so anyway, I don't know how I got into that, but uh, it was my stuff. So the practicum, I, I was getting a youth degree, but all the other youth majors, I felt very insecure around them because they were sharp, talented young men and women. And I was still identifying with my past. I, I was a, in my mind, I was a homeless alcoholic that just got saved. And their identity was, they, they, you know, they, they would talk about sports and they would talk about things, you know, their, their high school years. They were big men on campus and they did this and they did that. You know what I did in high school? I got drunk and I didn't remember most of what I did. And so I, it was like I was stripped of my identity. I didn't have a new one. And so God was trying to deal with that. And so I was getting a youth degree, and I had an opportunity to minister within this youth ministry. It was, it was a phenomenal youth ministry. They went from 40 kids to 1,250 in like three years. It was, it was a tremendous ministry. 
And instead of doing that, you know what I did? I went, and it was hard to get into that practicum, but God opened the doors for me to do that. Instead, I went into intercession, practicum. I hid in spiritual things. Now, there's nothing wrong there. That's a good thing. Pray. It wasn't what I was doing. It was why I was doing it. It was so I wouldn't have to be around these people that brought out my insecurities. God was still after the thing that drove me to alcoholism. I was just finding another thing to numb out. Now it was ministry. Before it was Jim Beam. Now it was, you know, intercession. We've got to be careful because we can, we can build the kingdom of heaven in our life through enemy slave labor. We think we're doing good, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I'm telling you, if we don't confront those issues, it will blow up. And so we've got to be transparent. We've got to let people speak into our life so that we can begin to discern what's at the root of this thing. What is, what is the thing I'm trying to escape from? What is the pain I'm trying to avoid? Sin at its root is flight from pain. The enemy will always try to stir up pain in your life and then entice you to get off the ground of God's will to relieve yourself of that suffering. That is the nature of sin. And that's why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus suffered in his body. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. In other words, the mindset, the attitude Jesus had towards pain is literally an armor of defense that we can hold up. And it keeps us protected from the enemy. Jesus suffered in his body. You arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And then, like we said last week, that stunning statement, because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. This is why Jesus, Christianity, the kingdom of God, discipleship is not a painkiller. It's the ability to force, to face our pain and deal with it. Because sin at its root is flight from pain and righteousness must look down the barrel of that gun and face the pain. And only then can you resolve it. One of the dangerous philosophies that is coming out today in this emphasis on the minor theme and making it the major theme is this surrender to a false finish line that, hey, I'm honest, I'm transparent, but acting as though struggle, living, living under the weight of our past is the normal Christian life. It is not. God is out to resolve your issues. He's out to grow you beyond them. Believe me, there'll be more issues behind it, okay? So you'll never run out of issues. Good, you know, I don't want you to feel like you're going to get bored, okay? <laughs> but you better be dealing with some new issues and not the continual old issues. If you're still struggling with the same thing you were struggling with five years ago, there is a problem. And you need to stop and confront that thing in your life. We're to go from glory to glory not just kind of sit in the gory, you know, just in the, the same old stuff. We're to go from glory to glory dealing with, dealing with things in our life. And so we've got to face those issues. We've got to face that pain. And there is a lie that's being propagated theologically in this day and age by well-meaning people, and that is that just struggling to keep your head above water is the normal Christian life. 
that just, just struggling to keep your head above water, that's what's really going on with everybody, but the real good Christians will admit it. And I'm telling you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. It doesn't say he who the sun's forgiven is forgiven indeed. That's true. But God wants to take you beyond merely being forgiven. He wants to bring you into freedom where you have victory over these things. The same pain that the enemy wants to leverage to entice you into sin is the same pain that God wants to leverage to pull you into maturity. There is no maturity, no pain, no gain. You will never grow up without facing pain in your life. There are parents who try to keep them kid, their kids from facing pain. And they inevitably keep them immature. That's not their goal, but that's what happens. We've got to face pain, and when we face it, it causes us to grow up and to, to develop the character and so this thing, that's why I said last week, if your ongoing pain, if the ongoing pain in your life becomes the personal, the personal evidence that you present before God to say, this must be your will for me to live this way, or you're not faithful because I'm still struggling with pain, or you haven't delivered me because I'm still hurting, you have, you've already bought into the lie that says that deliverance means you never hurt. No, it means that you're mature enough that you can face the pain and not get off the feet of, off the, the, the ground of righteousness. That pain will not give me, uh, uh, cause me to give up the ground that I stand on. This morning, when we were singing that song, God is good, and Hoel kept saying it, just crying it out, God is good, God is good. John reached over to, leaned over and he said, that comes as an expense to them right now. And I knew exactly what he was saying. Friday, they just had the, the uh, memorial service for their little nephew who lived, what, seven days? Seven days. But they've taken a stand and they have glorified God and worshiped God in the midst of that. And the, the, the outcome that they were hoping for, that they were praying for, that they were crying out for, didn't happen. And the enemy wants to leverage that and say, you need to be offended. Oh, we preach about signs and wonders, but it didn't happen. God must not love you like he loves others. And all those lies. But there's something within them that's saying, no, you know what? Matter of fact, this Sunday, we're going to take a stand and talk about how we're going to declare it in worship. God is good. We're going to develop the whole worship structure around this ground. We're not getting off this ground. The Lord spoke to me a few, a couple of months ago, and I haven't preached on this yet because I don't fully have a grasp of it, but I think it's time to kind of release it out there. The Lord told me, he said, the trials in your life are invitations to take ground in the spirit. That I, I use, in, in a sense, God will use you as the bait to the enemy and the enemy will be drawn in, and he's going to try to get you off your ground. What he never understands is that if you will stand your ground, you'll have more ground in the end than you had in the beginning. It's exactly what God did with Calvary. Jesus was the bait, and Calvary was the hook. And the enemy thought, oh, I got him. And he opened wide his mouth, the grave swallowed him, and 
then God went and set the hook. If you're a fisherman, you know what I'm saying. Set the hook. And the enemy went, oh, oh. And he got indigestion. This is not good. And Jesus' death, his suffering, was the very thing that gave him the greatest victory of all. And I'm telling you, the same is true for you and I. We don't always get the external outcome we long for, but the greatest reward, the greatest battle, the the most crucial trophy is not the external battle of circumstance. It's the internal battle of our, our stand before God that we declare, God, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is happening, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to interpret you through my circumstances. You are good. You are good. You are good. You are good. And when we do that, when we refuse, to sin to relieve ourselves of pain, you are taking ground in the spirit. You are garnering authority. And when you come out the other end, you got something you didn't have before. And the enemy has lost something he had before. So we've got to understand this thing of suffering. Suffering is not evidence that God is not working. Suffering is simply evidence that you and I live in a fallen world. But our willingness to embrace it and still hold to the goodness of God is the very way in which God takes ground. And some of you right now, you're in, you're in a struggle and the enemy's lying to you and saying, you're less than. Boy, you're not a very good Christian because you keep falling. And the problem is not that you're not a good person. The problem is you haven't understood what we're talking about. And God wants to stiffen your backbone this morning. He wants you to understand what you're really dealing with. He's trying to lure you into self-pity so that you'll relieve yourself of suffering, that you'll buy into a philosophy that justifies that behavior. And God wants to stiffen your resolve this morning and say, you know what? If I got to live with this pain the rest of my life, this one thing I'm going to do, I will not sin, I will not grieve his heart, and I will not be offended with his character. I'm going to declare his goodness, and I'm going to exhibit his goodness through my life. And when we come to that conclusion, when we come to that conclusion, that's when deliverance begins to happen. If you put a timeline on your deliverance, I've had people tell me, I gave God a year to deliver me and I still had those desires. You might as well give up now. You've got to come to the place where you say, I will live this way the rest of my life if I have to. I made a decision. If I've got to be a shaking, sweating, uh, stuttering uh, bundle of anxiety for the rest of my life, so be it. But I am going to, st- I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to grieve the heart of God. I'm going to serve Jesus till I die. I didn't understand that that was actually the pathway to my deliverance. I didn't understand that God was enabling me to resolve those issues and get to the other side. Some of you this morning, God wants to point out to you the Rahab in your life, the woundedness in your past around which some belief systems have begun to be built and and out of that some behavior that's unhealthy, that's keeping you from your promised land. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.